I encourage everyone to take a moment and breathe and take a tea cheers with a Jiri tea. A Jiri tea recognizes the beauty in shared stories and shared opportunities. Ajiri sources award-winning tea from Kenya, employs women in the region to handcraft the labels, and sends 100% of the profits back to the region to support orphan education. Save 10% on your order of Kenyan teas and coffee with the code BEAUTIFULLYHUMAN at ajiritea.com. A-J-I-R-I-T.com. Tea mugs up! Hello, and welcome to the Beautifully Human Podcast. I'm Nick Sheesby. In this podcast, I speak with beautiful humans from all around the world, sharing with you their incredible stories, revealing the power in every human story to spread love and humanity to a world that is in desperate need of it, to show that we can all connect in beautiful ways, no matter where we come from or what we look like. What you will find out is that we are all beautifully human. Let's all be beautifully human. Hello and welcome everybody to the Beautifully Human podcast. From wherever you are tuning in, I truly appreciate you being here today. I am hanging out with Jean Celestine Lakin and her story, just to warn you, is, is very hard to listen to. She tells it in such an incredible way with such power and such strength and such beauty and her voice is incredibly poetic, but it is an incredibly, incredibly tough story to listen to. Um, again, I, all I can think of is powerful and beauty and strength um, talking about her story and what she went through, um, especially she's the same age as me, so... That really hit home for me. I'm sure it will for you. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm trigger warning. It is it is a very tough one. It talks about some very very inhumane treatment of humans, and it's it's just a tale of horror, truly, that she lived through. So I will let her tell the rest of that story. If you enjoy this podcast, follow along on Spotify and on Instagram at the Beautifully Human Podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Helps get these stories out to more people. And as always, enjoy this conversation. So I'm happy to have you here. And I, I love to start these off with just an open-ended, overarching, very broad question and say, tell me the story of your life. Whoa. Nick, are you sure you want to be here all day? Yep. <laughs> A story of my life. I, so I have, you know, I've gone through the good, the bad, um, and the ugly. Uh, I really, I feel like uh, I went somehow hell and back. Uh, but the beauty is, I'm here and uh, I, I get to do what I feel like it's important to me, uh, which is really like teaching and advocating for peace and reconciliation. And so may maybe going back to the Rwandan genocide against the Tutsi people, I was a nine-year-old girl, um, lived with my parents, my 
relatives, um, we had extended family, the people that we considered literally as our part of our family members, even though that they were from other, you know, the other ethnic ethnic group. But then, you know, um, I mean, I was just again loved. Uh, my parents had all kinds of resources; they had their own businesses, and I felt like I my future was bright. It was just if I could just like you know, buckle down and go to school, life was going to be great. That's how I envisioned it, at least. And then months closer to 1994, there were just, you know, I mean, actually years before um, these propaganda that were going around that um, propaganda, hatred uh, propaganda. And, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, politicians know how to use propaganda to incite hate um, and also just really pull out these, uh, energize these people who just regular citizens, which just like, it breaks my heart that somebody takes a statement um, and uses this verbiage that just, you know, pin, you know, against one another to serve their purpose. And that's what happened in Rwanda. They just, you know, one day we were, you know, an ethnic group you know, just a, a group of people, an ethnicity that were part of the human family. The next day, we were called the cockroaches or the snakes. We were just basically everything except humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember in the middle of the genocide, they'll say, you know, cut the tall trees. And it wasn't like it was like a, it was another way of saying kill these people because they're you know, the feet, their features and the way they looked. Um, so the government really, they were ready, they, they prepared, they ordered, um, imported over 5,000 machetes into Rwanda specifically to kill uh, the Tutsis. They uh, mobilized and trained regular citizens, educated, non-educated, doctors, uh, priests, uh, pastors of the church, it was, and a lot of people think like, okay, it's a genocide. It was committed by these, you know, uneducated people. These were people in the government uh, who, you know, held government offices were regular citizens, neighbors against neighbors, uh, husbands killing their own wives because they, they were intermarriage. It was coconuts and I I don't say that lightly it was in 100 days over 1 million people are dead and that included my parents basically and most again almost all my relatives and me as a child so on uh, April 7th of 1994 uh, my sweet father comes into the room and again you know they divided us we we were you know, the Tutsis were supposed to be, I hate to say this, but the, when the colonial power came in, they divided us by the features. Imagine that, just features. You have a long nose, you're tall, uh, skinny bones. Your characteristic defined what side you will be. So my father, for instance, was a six, seven foot tall. Uh, my mother, uh, about, you know, 5'8", if not, you know, taller. But to have somebody be defined 
basically be killed because the way they look, it just boggles my mind up to this day. So in 100 days, they just went out and killed these, you know, innocent people, men, women, and children with machetes uh, and clubs. Uh, and a lot of times people think, you know, maybe a gun. No, it was just these basic tools that were used to kill these innocent people. They hunted us in, you know, in the bushes, in the swamps. So again, back to my dad, my dad comes, you know, came home on April 7th and he, we were, there was 10 of us children in the house. And he said, well, to give you a chance to survive, we're going to break into groups. So they broke us into uh, three groups. My, uh, I have a twin sister, Jeanette. She was sent to one of the Hutu family members that we that was very close to us. Again, we considered her as a family. So my father sent her there. He sent me with my three-year-old twin sisters, Teddy and Teta, sent me to my auntie who was married to a Hutu. And my brother, I don't remember which uh, area he sent him. But when I arrived that night to my auntie's uh, house, her husband uh, basically said, unfortunately, no, we can't stay here. Her husband had already uh, started to participate in the genocide. Wow. And so wow. from there, we lived in the bushes, in the swamps. Um, and I love when I present in high schools, kids, they, they usually go, you lived in the bushes. What were you eating? Oh, we ate grass, we ate berries. If we're lucky, we'll find those things. Uh, we ate flowers. Uh, and occasionally I'll run into, I'll go to uh, some of the neighbors as I was hiding and literally with my own hands, dig up, you know, potatoes, sweet potatoes, corn. Um, and coming from a family where I was cared for, Everything was, you know, done for us. All I had to do again was to, to study. And uh, being in that environment, and this is something that, you know, I share with people is that our human spirit is resilient. I mean, if, I mean, we've seen COVID. COVID is one thing. But when you, when you hold on to hope, really, if you really hold on to hope and say to yourself, tomorrow is going to get better. The next hour is going to be better. That's how I survived. If I would have lost hope in the middle of that genocide, I would have walked straight to these. I mean, they had barriers where you're actually, entire country was sealed with these people with the gun, guns, machetes, clubs. So, and they had blocks in every area. You wouldn't walk in the middle of the genocide almost not even a half a mile without seeing a dead body. That's how they managed to kill. I mean, they estimate within like the first few months, it was every like six minutes you have, I mean, every hour you had more than 500 people dead. Wow. It's just, it was one of the fastest killing campaign in our modern history. But to be part of that experience and to be here and to have survived I take life as a gift every single day and I hold on to hope every day. Uh, I don't let anybody just uh, mess with my day. That's just, you know, truth. 
like, okay, you're having a, a bad day. We all do. So I'm just going to let you, you know, if I can't help you because I can't fix everyone, right. <laughs> I go, right. you're not going to affect the energy and uh, the negativity is not going to affect my day because I, again, I go back to life is very short um, to really hold on to the bitterness and hate and uh, to just lay the smallest, you know, the minute things just throw off my, my day. No. <laughs> right. Yeah. I um, lived through the genocide and um Again, I watched my father being killed with machetes and clubs as a nine-year-old, and that just made my heart feel like it was, you know, my heart was ripped out of my, you know, chest because no child, no human, you know, in fact, should be able to go through, you know, that. And there's, when I present a lot of time, people ask me, or people who have never heard the term genocide, they will say, what is the, what's the definition for genocide? There's a really, you know, I read the dictionary, the definition in the dictionary does not do justice when it comes to genocide or Holocaust. You know, uh, like Rwandans, uh, Tutsis were, you know, were called cockroaches and snakes. The Jews were, you know, they humanized the same way. They were rats. And so but what I don't understand up to this day is that how you take a normal human being and brainwash them to be able to have such hate in their mind, to dehumanize another human being uh, to that level. So the definition for me, there's again, because there's no this definition of, you know, of genocide or Holocaust, there's no way to really grasp the meaning of what it looks like until somebody walks through it. It's just stripping of humanity. It's just taking away everything we know about human away and putting us in, in a position to, I, I say that when I was in the middle of the genocide, the only thing that I was left with, you know, with was my, my little twin sisters and God, because everything else was stripped away. Yeah. And that's yeah. how stripping of um, the genocide can be of humanity. Wow. Um yeah, I just can't even fathom being in, like you said, no human should have to see that. And I have never come anywhere near something like that. So I can't even imagine putting myself into a situation like that where I'd have to survive and go through something like that. Um, so as it was happening, how did how did you eventually make it through? Nick, very good question. I seriously, I believe God saved me. And a lot of people would, you know, even survivors will ask, you think, that, you know, it's God who saved you. Why didn't he save the next other person? Uh, there were a few times I was in line to be killed right in front of these people with machetes, machetes and clubs, uh, blood stained their clothes and just... And I will pray again because prayer was the only thing that I was left with. I'll go, my, I had a simple prayer and it was God blind them that they might not see me. But yet I'm standing in their presence, but blind them that they might not see me. And Nick, a few times in the genocide, literally 
is men will go, okay, go have a seat over here. We will kill you in an hour. And I'll sit there waiting for my, my turn to die. And something will happen and they will go, okay, we give you 30 more minutes. And I just, I just prayed and that's it. And sometimes literally, like, I mean, over, I counted how many times I almost died over 200 times. Wow. Well, I'll just in these places where there was no way out, there's no way myself talking myself out of that, not dying, but these men would just get up and walk away, look like they somehow, or they would fall asleep. And I'll pick my little twin sisters and I'll go. And so with that, it was, I felt like it was God just from all of those events, all of those times that I was there, that was, I had been captured and they would just release me or I just walk away. It was just God making a way. Uh, one time, I, I don't know why this came to mind, in the middle of the, you know, almost at the end of the genocide, they said that um, actually before that, there was time where they would burn the bushes and the swamps they would, because they wanted to flush out the Tutsis out of those uh, swamps, out of those uh, uh, hiding places. So they literally would pour petroleum around the, these places and burn. Um, so we had no places to hide. There were very few places for us to hide. So what I did as a child, I don't know why this came to mind, but I felt like, again, it was God just equipping, equipping me to do things that a nine-year-old probably wouldn't think of. I decided to have seeds, marbles, like little small uh, seeds that looked like marbles inserted into my nose to mimic like the looks of the other ethnic group, because they will say they have broader nose, they're shorter. So I took these little seeds and I had a great time with my, <laughs> had a fun time trying to convince my three-year-old twin sisters to get these seeds, yeah, yeah. sort it up in their nose so they can look like the other ethnicity. And uh, the minute I got them to put the seeds in their nose, I made them practice how to say one phrase, I am a Hutu. That's the other ethnicity. I am a Hutu. So stay strong and stand tall. Behave like you are this from this other ethnicity because again, the bushes are burned. So we have no places, you know, no place to hide. We that was one of the camouflage we had to, you know, uh, that, that I crafted. And I walked a few times I walked out of the bushes, and it felt like liberating to be able to walk out of the bush and with this like nose, you know, nostrils uh, flared. But a few times I just, I felt like, oh my goodness, I am taking a risk. And sometimes it's, that's all you can do. You have to take a risk. If you, <laughs> it was either they burned us in the, those bushes or we walked to the, um, the barriers or the, uh, and have us killed. So I had to do all I had to do in order to keep my uh, twin sisters alive. One other thing that I did, it was, uh, and again, I don't know how or why, but I felt like the kids who were younger were, they were able to go and, you know, pick up these like little shrubs for their families for cooking, the, the woods for cooking. And so 
I watched them and I said, they just look like so free as I was hiding in my hiding place. Um, and I was like, okay, so what if I just picked these little shrubs just like those other kids and just walk around like I have a place to belong? And that's what I, that's one other thing that I did. And, you know, a few times again, I felt like this is kind of risky. Yeah. But it was away for three months. You can only imagine living in the bushes. And, you know, now I complain about humidity in Texas, but in Rwanda, oh my goodness, the rain was constant. It was almost like every single day it would rain. And somehow rain became our saving grace. When it rained, these people didn't want to be outside. Uh, they would actually go into, many of them at least, will, will go into their homes until the rain will, you know, come down and they'll go back to killing. And so when it rained, it was my time to get out of the bush and go find something to eat, find more berries for these little twin sisters. And um, it was one of those, you know, times where I felt like, okay, maybe I'll wake up. And it was just a dream, but that was my, you know, reality. That was just the reality that we were living through. I watched and I listened to so many uh, people just being killed, um, women being raped. Uh, one of the things that in, in Rwanda that they did was uh, to gang rape women. So they will have, I mean, United Nations had estimated that between 250 to 500,000 women were gang raped. So many of them end up, ended up with uh, HIV and AIDS and uh, other, um, not just like trauma, but other diseases as well, uh, if they survived. So it was, was crafted genocide, it was organized, very much, they, they made a plane and they were ready to go. Uh, one of the, but I talk about, how, you know, just I walk through these events where they were about to kill me and they spare me or something happens and I, I walk away and I go, okay, God, this prayer is working. And so I started using the same prayer saying, God, blind them. They might not see me. And uh, there's this, at this time, there's one, one of these times where I was, um, Right, almost at the end of the, you know, at the end of the closer to the end of the genocide, these participants were afraid that the new government, the the rebels that, you know, from my uh, ethnic group, the Tutsis, who had been in exile for so many years, uh, they were coming from a neighboring country, Uganda, coming to Rwanda, risking their lives basically to come and save whoever had made it at that point. Uh, any tooth that had made it to that point. So these uh, organized um, rebels, Rwandan, uh, they're called uh, RPF, Rwandan Patriotic Front, risking their lives, find their way through to come and rescue, uh, basically take over the country. When they were coming in, fighting coming in, these participants of the genocide decided that they would actually flee the country. So we have I mean, you're thinking about over 1 million people dying. So you have majority of the Hutu who participated in the genocide, but I also want to talk about those who didn't participate as well. So these people decide to move, to flee the country. The men who captured me, at the end I got captured and then 
this man keeps me in his home, obviously uh, rapes me. I was, um, but decided to take me to the Congo, uh, another neighboring country, and, because he was supposed to be fleeing the country and take me with him. While I was going with these people, there were thousands and thousands of people. And even in this refugee camp where we were, um, uh, we, we were fleeing into, they were still picking people who looked, had the same features like myself, being you know, selected and in line, being killed left and right. So one point they captured me. I was still with the family, but they, they gave me um, and they had me in line. I was in line with these people. They killed every single person in front of me. And then they get to me and I was like, God, for these months, you didn't save me so I can come and die here. They didn't run and hide. And at this point I have had already been, uh, my twin sisters had been taken away. So I'm not with them. I've been separated. And I was like, God, I, I know. I don't think this is it. I don't think this is, should be it. And Nick, there in that line, they throw me down to throw me in the, you know, in the river, just like everybody else that, that had, you know, killed it before me. And I hear this woman as they threw me on the ground. She said, stop, stop. That's my daughter. That's my child. And I'm thinking to myself as I lay there, I was like, this woman is going to walk here. She's going, her eyes and mine are going to meet. And she's going to realize that I'm not her daughter. And she's going to walk away. This woman weaves herself through all of these people, hundreds of people in line chanting, kill her, kill her, kill her. She just walks right through and she looks at me and I looked at her. I was like, and she said, no, that's my child. She continued to claim that I was her child. I knew my mother was dead still, but I was like, okay, let me see how this is going to unfold. These men were confused. I feel confused, but I'm not trying to show that I was confused or has had any doubts at all. But this woman, she was just flawless. And she's looking at me and still claiming me. And something in my heart just felt so warm that somehow that just God has just sent me an angel to save my life. They picked me up threw me in this woman's arms. Actually, before they did that, they actually separated her and I. And they said, don't say anything. They had her go on one side, me on the other. They did investigation. So they asked me a series of questions. What is your name? Where were you born? Um, what city? How old are you? And guess what? Every, all of those things. Because in Rwanda, we had, just like the way we have a, a driver's license, in Rwanda, you had to carry identity, racial identity card. So you're a Tutsi or you're Hutu with your children's names in, the, in there, where they were born. All of those details they asked me was exactly how they were written in her identity card. Wow. And they come back, threw me right into her arms and said, go. So she holds me, holds my arm. She's like, my child, I will be with you. And I turn around to look at the, the rest of the people who were behind me being killed. And this woman, 
I, she said, I'll be with you. Go with these people, I'll be with you. And released my arm and disappeared. And so I continue with these people. Wow. But ever since I felt like God has literally, uh, well, life is going to be tough that we are in this world and I'm not spared ever since. But I know in that moment, um, in the book, I don't say well, she was an angel, but the reality, because we wanted to let people kind of conclude what they, you know, think that she was. A lot of people think that was my mother who came back to life. A lot of people think that God sent me a beautiful woman to just save me who was from another ethnicity. All those things could be said to that. I don't think that was my mom. <laughs> but those other things could be possible. It's just the way I, I've seen miracle after miracle. And I just decided, you know what? This is God. What I see is God just working in my life. So I am here because he saved me. There's nothing I could have done as a nine-year-old to save myself. Yeah. Yeah. It was tough sometimes. And I was like, I am just walking, marching to these people. And I want them to, to kill me. So it will be, I'll be done hiding. I'll be done trying to, you know, uh, make sense to my twin sister, my uh, three-year-old twin sisters, what this is. Uh, to, to even like keep them away from seeing such, you know, in, inhumane acts being acted in, you know, right in front of them. Yeah. But then I felt like, okay, I look in their eyes and go, no, can't do this. Can I have the, you know, them die? Can, I have basically became mom and played mom's role, played dad's role, played big sisters. Oh, uh, I grew up so fast because I felt like there was a purpose. And that's another thing that I tell people when you feel like life is bad, find a purpose, just find something you can focus on, but find a reason why you should be leaving. Um, because that's what saved me. Uh, I said, well, life might be as bad as it is, but now I have a re responsibility. These twins have to survive. And I have, they in my hands and I have to do whatever that I need to do to make sure that they make it at the end. Wow. Yeah. I just can't even, the strength that you have to make it, to be telling this story. So thank you for telling, telling the story and reliving it and just, wow. Um, how, with everything that you've experienced and you've seen, I know mentally that I can't even I can't even imagine what that what that does to your mind, especially as such a young person. I mean, I couldn't imagine walking out the door and seeing someone get murdered in front of me at thirty six. I th I mean, I would be shell shocked by that. So mentally, how how do you how do you deal with that? And like, how do you keep your mental strength through that? Very good question. Did you just mention that you're 36? Because I'm, yes. I'm about to be 36. Nick, yeah. we're, we're the same age in the genocide. See, honestly, I was <laughs> I was doing the math because you said 94 and you said you were nine. And I was like, so you have to be the same age as me. Yeah. Or cl like, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. July 7th will be my birthday. So I'll be 36. Oh, Goodness. Almost a month from today. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> do the math yeah so which, you are the same age yeah which again that similarity to me i'm just thinking of my life when i was nine years old and on forward 
compared to yours and i'm like it couldn't have been more different there's it's unbelievable no so yeah it's uh i again i i I feel like when we are thrown in you either sink you know swim or sink and i i did swim (laughs) for my life um the mental you know honestly like i didn't feel like uh in, in the middle of the genocide, I didn't think that I, I didn't feel like I was mentally affected. I was afraid in the middle of the, the genocide. I was afraid of what my life was going to be like or what my mental state was going to be if I survived the genocide. That's what I was afraid of because a lot of times when you're running, when you're in this like survival mode, you're just leaving by seconds, by minutes, by hour so you don't have time to think about all the pain that you like very much experienced i had like for the first time in my life i actually felt like i had anxiety and i felt like i have migraines and i was like that's it you know it's attributed to what i just saw um to the genocide that i just witnessed my mother i saw my mother and my uh, three-week-old little brothers, uh, dead, dead bodies as well in, in the middle of all of that. But at the end of the genocide, so I I came back and I'm, I was a homeless kid at 10 because no orphanages was, you know, they were just full at the capacity. And um, I ended up becoming a homeless. But I remember just being so angry so I was I felt resentment uh, towards these people I felt anger I felt just so depressed after the genocide because again I'm in the middle of the streets and you know somebody recently I was uh, doing a interview with a Holocaust uh, museum they wanted to have my story recorded in the uh, in the museum and they asked me what were you eating? Oh, how was life? How was that? That should that must have been tough. But to be honest, my response was, I survived the genocide. Now I'm in a country where, you know, the the new government had taken over. Nobody's dying, so hunger was not a big deal to me because I've been hungry. For, I mean, since April seventh, I've been living outside. Now it was December. So not a big deal, didn't, you know, uh, and I wasn't being abused. I was just a homeless kid. I've been, I was, I was like, I lived in the bushes. And so now I'm living in, in the streets, <laughs> freely living in the streets. So something better it was an yeah, upgrade. Yeah. Um, and so by then, like my heart was able to really process all of that. I just had seen uh, six months, you know, after six months. And I, I remember feeling like I was descending into this dark dungeon and there was no way coming out of that. Uh, depression, PTSD had really got the best of me and held me so tight. I remember just praying and asking God, I was like, you didn't save me so that I can live this miserable life so I can be a prisoner of my mind. That's how it felt like. It was just in jail. <laughs> and um, and I, I remember just crying. And I, 
saying, God, I don't think this is it. I don't think this is why you saved me to be have so much anger, to have so much resentment in my heart. And um, I remember just lying down that, you know, that lying down and I felt like the Holy Spirit. Actually, before I go there, my mother, my sweet mom used to say that if you have a bitter heart, if you're angry at my siblings, then God does not hear your prayers. Like there was almost like there was a cup that if you if you don't forgive, God doesn't hear you. You know, and as a child, I believed that. Yeah. I really yeah. honestly believed that. So I said, okay, God you want me to forgive these people for me to be free. I don't know how I cannot see myself forgiving these people. If anything, I want to condemn to go to hell. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And I remember just hearing almost like God's voice as I was lying there um, says, forgive them, forgive them. So soft, forgive these people. And I was like, I don't know how, I don't even have the strength to forgive these people. But I said, well, I'm going to be obedient. Give me guidance. Show me how, and I'll do it. And Nick, I, I remember the minute I was able to say, I forgive you for raping me. I forgive you for killing my family. I forgive you for all these inhuman things that I've seen as a child, all those things that are still echo in the archive of my memory. I forgive you for all of that. And God challenged me to pray for these people. And that was another task. I was like, and again, as somebody who's been hurt, to pray and wish well to somebody who have caused you pain, it's not an easy thing. No. And so I said, I almost felt like God was funny. I was like, ha ha, really? <laughs> Pray, bless them. But again, Nick, when I said, I bless them, not wishing them anything bad to happen to them, but wishing them to be able to feel God's presence, wishing them to be able to live a free life, joyful life. And that was magical for me. That was the something that, I prayed for them that freed me. I tell people that it felt like as if I was literally just like an eagle, high up in the sky, flying with this so much joy and freedom in my heart that I felt like now I had access to all those things that had been taken away from me. Like I had like not just have access to my family that had been taken away, but I had this door of opportunity, it's almost like there was this door of opportunity now that my mind was open and clear that I could do. Like Intellectually, I felt like, you know what? Yes, these things have been taken away, but I can rebuild because now I can focus. Now I can go to bed and sleep. Now I can be able to go. I love nature. I can just step outside and enjoy the sunshine and see flowers and see beauty in people because I was able to really say, I forgive these people. And I know a lot of people think that there's this misconception about forgiveness that 
if you forgive somebody somehow you're minimizing what they've done to you or you're welcoming them back into you know work all over you or you know they're not going to be punished because you forgive them it's all misconception we forgive so we can be free so if any of you know your listeners nick forgiveness is a gift you can give yourself that's just bottom line when you forgive you tell yourself that you are free you know longer tied to that abuse you know longer tied to the pain uh, the pain happened when you can process all of that but you're free to live your potential you're free to live in the present moment um one other thing that i was that i did uh because again when you go through ptsd i encourage people to seek professional help um is so some of these things you cannot go through them yourself and swapping them under the carpet as an work they come yeah. back they really come back and so professional help is even having a good friend to talk to not everybody has access to professional um you know counseling and uh psychologists and so forth but having a good somebody you can communicate with somebody can trust to t- share the darkest part of your life is so critical so important so my husband um I remember when i met him he i shared these stories with him and he said you need to go see counseling <laughs> you need to get into counseling and i at first i was like no i've been i'm just fine but the, you know because i don't i wasn't having nightmares but i would you know get like a anxiety uh or i'll feel like you know get sweaty hands and he's like no honey you need to go see you know we need to have a you need to chat with a, a professional to keep, to kind of give you he's not a professional he's not a counselor we could talk to each other which we actually became each other's counselors because he was uh, abused as well by his own um uh sibling and um a professional help really helped both of us so i remember going into my counseling the first time and my my counselor she as i detailed the events and she told she looked at me in the eyes and she said well you know jean you can actually traumatize somebody by sharing these things and that was the last time i saw you know that counselor yeah but that's to say that not like your first visit doesn't mean it's you're going to have a a click with us somebody the counselor you might have to see multiple counselors until you find the one that you understand that understands you that is able to guide you so you know really try multiple people there's this woman that i saw in washington state very sweet uh woman she she was another one that my husband said i'm signing you up signing you up for and i saw her she was doing a emdr um and just literally uh it's the eye movement uh practice where people, as you tell the details of you know what happened to you uh or what you've experienced ptsd and so forth they able to walk you through this like light uh back and forth i felt like that was so helpful uh and so it's something that is being used with uh, our uh soldiers who are coming back with ptsd as well So it's very effective it helped me uh, and I did combo between and also you know obviously diet as well so I did a uh, do a lot of cleansing yoga meditation 
all the things that are, you know, that are helpful. Sometimes um, because of uh, a lot of like noises that were happening around me in the middle of the genocide, when I see, pe hear people just like screaming on top of each other, that just like sends me into like, that's chaos is coming. So I get my anxiety level goes up. Sure. Um, so at least even when I'm working out, you know, I have like background music that is calm instrument uh, music. Music is good for the soul. Um, or I do literally, if I feel like something is coming, I would do my breathing exercise uh, before, or if I feel like, you know, and also the way we wake up in a day. Oh my goodness. When you get up and then boom, run to your coffee, you know, maker, and then you run out of the house, you have not given, you've already set yourself to, you know, for failure because all that rush doesn't help ourselves. So I make it a, a conscious effort to, okay, I'm going to get up, going to say a prayer, going to say the things that I'm grateful for, small and big. And I've been, you know, again, I keep saying that I'm grateful for my coffee, simple things like that grateful for hugs for my four-year-old son uh those things like helped me go into the day feeling like it's a great it's going to be a great day yeah that's the things i've done nick and uh there's so much more that i yet probably need to learn to do um but ptsd is something that we can process ourselves we just need you know professional help good bodies to uh and also just do a little bit of work for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that is a big testament to how helpful that can be after seeing that and going through what you've been through to, to know that those, those are the things that work. And I love how you said, like, we do set ourselves up for failure, just like rushing around in the morning. It's like, give yourself an ease into the day. Uh, simple things just little little these simple things every day i say i am grateful and you make a five you know a list of five things because life could be so you know and, and also thinking that i make a conscious effort to say my life might suck right now but there's somebody who has it worse oh every single day not just like the the five things that i'm grateful for but also to say there's somebody out there who has the worst today and that just puts things like in perspective because yeah. then you have you know your gratitude at least goes up in that moment when you do that yeah definitely <laughs> um so when did you come to the states i came when i was 14 years old and nick so the accent you hear um <laughs> i didn't speak any english when i when I arrived, I was going yeah. to kind of couple all of these questions together. I love your accent. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah I didn't have, thank you so much. I uh, came when I was 14 years old. I came, uh, landed in Missouri, went to school there, in, you know, middle school and high school, and uh, graduated. And I, I was like, I'm going to run away because I was actually being ab sexually abused and, you know, with my foster dad as well. So I was like, let me just run away. I ran one ran away to Washington State and uh, went to university there. Uh, met my husband in Washington State. Uh, blessing because he's been such a great gift from God, somebody who understands me as crazy as I am and loves me uh, despite all my flaws. And, you know, again, we are human. We 
we're not perfect. Nobody's asking us to be perfect. The only perfect person I know is Jesus. And so, but he loves me and, uh, and I love him. I love his heart. I love the fact he loves people and loves uh, just to be able to uplift other people, despite the fact he's been abused as well. And uh, once I graduated with uh, my uh, master's degree, I actually decided that we moved to Texas. And uh, Texas has been such an incredible state to us. Texans have been so wonderful to us. I uh, recently, I'm not sure if you've seen this um, interview on today's show with um, President Bush. Um, President Bush um, invited us to come and chat with him and uh, First Lady uh, Laura Bush to come and have a, a chat with them at the beginning of uh, last year, 2020. And uh, I remember just my husband and I, I, I'm, I was always a big fan of uh, President Bush and so is my husband. And um, I was like, I got the, the invite. I was like, oh my gosh, there's no way this is happening. Like I am going to meet President Bush. This is uh, like, this is unheard of. Yeah. We used to drive to Dallas uh, and I would tell my husband whether we were driving or flying there, I would say, wouldn't that be awesome to actually go have a cup of coffee with President Bush or have a you know, glass of wine? And my husband will remind me that he doesn't drink. I say, what about tea or coffee? Yeah. <laughs> Water. Right. And right. Um, he would say, well, honey, that's just not going to happen. But I kept professing it anyways. But so I got this invite and um, President Bush just, we, we met with him and um, Mrs. Uh, Bush it was one of the most incredible experience. Um, I remember just walking in. I was so sweaty, of course, because I was so nervous <laughs> and uh, meeting, you know, the president and uh, President Bush and, you know, the, the family, they have this, uh, they have such kind heart. They're just so loving and accepting of, you know, of, of people and our humanity. And they just made us feel so comfortable. And he asked me if he can highlight my story in his new book, Out of Many One. And I was just like so overwhelmed and honored. And also when somebody has been abused and been hurt so many times, when we receive like a gift, so somebody's nice to us, we think like we don't deserve it. And so I kept telling myself, wait, what? Did he really just say he's going to honor me in that way and talk about what I do? and talk about my life experience in his book i'm like who am i <laughs> that's amazing but they were just so kind um i mean i've watched them over the years and they have this soft heart for you know humanity and politics aside i think people are just when i see somebody who is accepting and loving of others it just makes me feel like that's what the humanity that's what you know we are part of that human family uh, when I think of the kingdom of God, I think of all of us with different colors from different religion, because I, at the end of it, we are all made from God's image. And we didn't choose where we were born, what ethnicity, what religion, what our sexuality. We didn't choose any of that. Right. There's a creator behind all of this. But if we can be kind and loving and accepting of all of us, it's just so critical and important. 
um, a lot of things, like a lot of times people ask me, how do you want to raise your son? I just want to raise him to where he's able to walk across the aisle and move on somebody who is a stranger. And he, four-year-olds do it so well. They don't right. see color. They don't see differences. They just see beauty in people. And they just love on everyone. And so it's a... Uh, it's been an incredible experience to be where I am and to be able to have an impact in, you know, young people. Uh, when I go out and speak to high schoolers, my book, uh, A Voice in the Darkness, is being used in high schools and some high schools and, you know, people from, you know, universities or churches have read it and have, they send me messages and go, you've changed my life. I'm like, if I only knew that, I will go through such, you know, horrific experience to touch somebody else's life and to be that light for that somebody. Maybe that's that all of that was worth it. All that pain was worth it because then I could be that light uh, in their um, dark world. So, yeah, uh, we also have a nonprofit, Nick. We have uh, one million orphans. It's my nonprofit. The goal is to reach out to one million kids. Um my paycheck is not big enough. I work for the, you know, for a community college. So if anybody wants to, you know, give to these children, uh, donate to these children. I think last time when we met at the, when you were in that conference, Nick, I said that truth, there's something so special about kids. Kids have so much love in their hearts uh, because again, they don't see these differences that we as humans we put on each other, these labels that we put on one another, children don't see that. And I feel like the reason it was like 1 million, you know, there were 1 million people that died in the Rwandan genocide and to be able to affected kids, not only teach like love on them, but also to teach them how to be great members of their society, to be, to show kindness to them so that they can actually go out and be kind to other people. So this nonprofit really covers, you know, their school supplies, medical needs. Uh, we feed them as well. Again, I we can do it by ourselves. And when people buy a copy of my book, which is on Audible right now, so people can listen to A Voice in the Darkness and some proceeds from the book, really that's what we use to help these kids. And so, yeah, that's where I am, Nick. <laughs> it is just seeing the joy and the smile that you have had while telling this the, your story is just shows how much strength and how much beauty has come out of your story and how you're putting that out to the world and it's truly incredible to sit and listen to you talk about these things yet you have this beaming smile when when you're talking about the children that you're helping and all the, all the beauty that you're putting back into the world and it's really incredible so i th thank i you. thank you for all the work you're doing and for for sharing with me your story thank you so much nick i had a blast so thank you for having me i'm super excited i can't not wait to share away uh, yeah. this conversation <laughs> <laughs> So you're doing such an incredible work. Um, I think you. humanity needs to come back together and just realize that, you know, our DNA itself, we are 99.99, you know, <laughs> percent the same. So yeah. that very small thing that people take it and just magnify it to be such a huge thing. It's not, 
it's not yeah. important to God and it shouldn't be important to us. We should just all love one another and accepting one another and just uplifting one another because at the end of it, life is short. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so important, the message that you're sharing about just about the hatred and how, what it can magnify too when, when it's put on somebody. And like you said, it wasn't militia. It was, it was everyday people that were fueled to hate and do these horrible, horrible, inhumane things. And I think that's what scares me so much is it doesn't have to be the worst of the worst. I mean, you can just be a normal person and be filled with such hatred that you do something and you, you can attest to that. Your story tells of that as a cautionary tale of spread the love, stop hating. I mean, it it is so apparent in every word that you say, how, how terrible it can get just by letting that hatred fuel you. Right. One of the things like, you know, as you're saying that, Nick, I just remembered, uh, you know, I'm going to pref- uh, paraphrase this. Nelson Mandela says the best. And he said that we are now born, we, we are born with love, but we are taught to hate. And so anybody who's listening, who has an impact in children's life, uh, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a guardian, uh, aunties and uncles, you name it. When you have that role in children's lives, don't, don't poison those children. Just don't poison them yeah. because we can teach them to love. I remember when I, I um, when I was a little uh, girl in, you know, right months before the genocide, we were segregated in schools. So literally schools were segregated. This is middle school. It was happening in middle schools, it was happening in colleges and, you know, universities. And um, I remember when my uh, teacher came in into the room and he's, he just literally said, the Tutsis on one side, the Hutus and Twa on the other side. And me, because we didn't talk about ethnicity at home, then talk about these differences, these features that dif- you know differentiated us. I remember just standing there confused. I was like, I have no idea which part of the group I need to go on. But the majority of the people were going to the Hutu and Twa side. And I thought, maybe I need to go on that side. And my teacher said, no, you go sit on the tooth side. You go ask your parents who you are. And the next day you have to come back and report. So I went home that day and I asked my mother. I was very frantic because I was like, I am mom, I am nine years old and I don't know which part of the group that I belong to. And so I asked my mother, I said, who am I? Am I Tutsi? Am I Hutu? Am I Twa? And my mom danced around this. Because again, she didn't want to disclose these differences to them was just kind of nothing. And her response was, Jean, you're just a child of God. And I wasn't satisfied because I had to, again, to go back and respond to my teacher. Yeah. And so I remember in the evening, I asked my father the same question. And how do we tell which, which features like make us like who we are and how we came to be? this you know this ethnicity and my father's response was in the kingdom of god there's no tutsi there's no hutu there's no twa you are just a child of god and that's something that carried me all of these years even though that my parents have passed those labels 
we slept on, you know, on each other. Somebody slept those blippers on us. Um, and here we are. But people take that to be, oh, I am part of this group of people. These are my, it's like kind of like a cult, you know, uh, where you say, I you worship everything about this group of people, but yeah, you just minimize the beauty that is in all the other groups of people. Um, the fact that we are all part of this kingdom family is what's important than those other labels that we um, put on each other. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, man. Um, I wanted to ask your... What is your native language? It's Kenya Rwanda. Kenya Rwanda. Like, so yeah. Rwanda is the last, but there's Kenya right in front. It's, um, it's such a beautiful language. I've been teaching it to my husband and my son. Um, my husband picked it up quick when he just met me. Uh, he wanted to impress me, but now he stopped. <laughs> After 12 years, that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's Kenya Rwanda. It's it's not very uh, used in other countries. Uh, Swahili is another one that is you know spoken in East Africa as well. I also picked up French, hmm. and so when people hear accents, I go, I don't know which one you're picking up. Right, <laughs> could be the French, could be a little bit of Kenya Rwanda. I don't know. It's very poetic. It's very beautiful. Yeah, it's long sentence. Yeah, it's the words are longer uh, as well. It's a, it's very calm. What's funny, actually, I'm glad you asked that. I spoke to my um, my family, uh, my my siblings who survived the genocide. When I speak to them, they go, "Why do you sound like you're rushing over the phone?" <laughs> but that's because like the English, we we speed up, and yeah. so when I'm speaking now, I feel like I'm used, even though they. It, it's a very poetic the Kinyaranda is. I feel like even with that, I picked up the speed. Yeah. You're like, why you sound like you're rushing now? Like I'm not going anywhere, just the way I sound now. Yeah, that's amazing. It could be the coffee. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um can you say a phrase in Kinyaranda? Absolutely. I'm a Yahweh. That means how are you? Oh, that's so beautiful. And you say, Nimeza, response is easy. Nimeza, which means good. Nimeza. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, thank you. I'll teach you some, Nick. Yeah, I would love <laughs> you that. You and my husband can get in the same class. Deal. I am totally in for that. Um, yeah. All right. I have a couple, two, two more questions for you. Um. First one is, what would you want the world to know about you? To know that I survived and I am living life, really. I'm fully living and, and I'm present. I uh, live in a present moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and that you. You have so much power in, in your story and li- that you are living in the present after everything you've you've experienced in your life. And it's really beautiful. Yeah. It is like, you know what, Nick, it's like, sometimes like people think like, okay, so I just survived this thing, but surviving without really fully living is not living. Uh, I remember uh, when, and again, I love Nelson Mandela after he was in prison for 27 years and um, he came out and he said, if I didn't forgive, uh, let the bitterness stay in prison, 
I would have been a prison, in prison, even though that he was outside, out of the prison. And so there's the difference between like really surviving and fully living every single day. There's not a day that I go by without really cherishing the moment for me because like, I feel like there's so much beauty. I stop and smell the roses. I, I, when I'm having a cup of coffee, I'm grateful for that. When I enter the house and there's a light and I can take a shower, I am grateful for those things. So, and again, I see beauty in people because I feel like we're so connected and there's so much, our difference, I feel like that's what makes us even more beautiful, that we can fully have access to different things yeah. and yet just love and accept and feel it's uh it's incredible i'm fully living yeah i love that <laughs> and i i think you like this i um there's a song that i really love and the lyrics in it i bring it up a lot on the podcast but it's just so beautiful and it's i went through a really bad time that i put on myself where i almost passed away because of my drinking um, and then when I started into sobriety and relearning how to live, I found this song. Well, I had known the song, but I found the lyrics just something that was so powerful. And it says, snails see the benefit, the beauty in every inch. Okay. You never sent me that uh, in an email. I would yes. love to listen to it. That is oh, beautiful. You'll love it. Yeah. And so that's how I started working back into life and learning is thinking about snails and how they love every i mean they, they see every single inch because they're just scooting along on the ground and i was yeah. like i really love that so wow that's, that's how perfect. i that's that's where i gather my strength from is thinking of snails uh, and the, the beauty in every inch that they find so i'm with I'm you on finding the beauty in, in all of life yeah man i love and i and i i'm so grateful that you you made it nick it's uh there's so much to live for now right yes absolutely there's so much to live for i i probably it's probably because there was a pain that you you were trying to numb yeah um and um you turned it around so I, i'm grateful that i want to learn about your story as well yeah we can do i need can... to go back and listen to podcasts or you have to tell me i, have I can to have tell a, you. a podcast so you can tell me yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, we could just chat at any point. I'd, I'd be glad to tell you my story. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you, you know, you have the strength and the resiliency in you to just to be able to do that. It's not easy. No, definitely it's not. It's not easy. Definitely not. So thank yeah. you for that. Mm -hmm. um, I actually want to throw one question in here if you have time. Um, I do. Perfect. I, I'd love to ask this question and uh, we'll take COVID restrictions aside and all of that. If I came to you and I had a plane ticket to anywhere in the world, where would you where would you be going with that plane ticket? Mm. And like anywhere they have like water, you know, like beaches. I, I love water. I love walking on the sand. So, gosh, that's a great question. I I feel like there's so many places, but again, if there's water, I I just this like the sound of water relaxes my mind. The Same. scent, like just like tickling my feet, just makes me feel joy and being on the sunshine. So I don't know. Um, my friends have been showing me pictures from uh, Puerto Rico. I have a um, a friend who just came back from Maui. Um, my husband, I've been like bugging him to go to you know maybe Miami because I just feel like I just need to get away and just be able to like 
breathe. <laughs> yeah. So anywhere, anywhere that have water. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's a good answer. I like I like that. Where would then, you go? Um mine changes all the time. And every time I ask ask people and I hear theirs, I'm like, oh, that's really good. Um, I'm fascinated just by every culture in the world. Um, but I have, I, I was on a cruise working. Um, it was a, a cruise that had a bunch of concerts going on it, on it. And I met this amazing human named Stuart. And he and I have become incredibly close. And he's from Zimbabwe. And I still speak with him every day. He ha he has an episode on my podcast where he told his story. And I think I would want to go see where he where he grew up. And I would want to just experience life with Stuart in his hometown. Oh. And I think that's the top of my list right now is just like getting there and just being with him and letting him show me around and just meeting people that he knows and just digging in and I think I think that would top my list right now. I think that'd be the coolest the coolest thing I could do. That is awesome. Well, you we were invited to come with us to Rwanda. Rwanda yes, is Rwanda is one of like the very cleanest uh, country in East Africa. Um, I mean, in Africa, I, sh I should say, they they were able to crack down like the um, I'm losing the word. It's like like fraud. So people are very like, and when you kind of eliminate fraud uh, in systems, the country will flourish. Uh, the government is working for the people instead of the people working for the government. Um, it's really like the, the president has been able to um, build this country that was turned upside down in the genocide because they just, the people who participated in the genocide wanted to leap over this entire country. So they have been, they have rebuilt the country. They have no longer, we no longer use uh, identity as race, racial identity is not a thing anymore. Good. So there's no race. We talk, you know, when you meet somebody from Rwanda, the, you, you ask them, who are you? It's like, I am a Rwandan. Yeah. Instead of, uh, I am a Tutsi or I'm a Hutu, um, you know, all of that stuff that have been uh, put aside. So we would love to take you to Rwanda. I mean, My husband and I were supposed to go uh, back, you know, 2020 and COVID happened. We were trying to go to uh, and teach some of our orphanages uh, how to have, you know, basically grow their own crops so they can actually uh, crops so they can actually feed themselves and have sustainable resources. And we learned about the, you know, raising fish as well, because we believe that who knows how long we're going to be here on this earth so we wanted to teach them how to have like their own sustainable resources just in case we cannot provide yeah. um but it was going to be a tour where we visit like you know countryside we visit these uh they have wonderful zoos there uh nature is gorgeous rwanda is known as one uh a country of 1000 hills i mean it's rolling hills it's just beautiful i think it's going to be I don't know. I envision Island being like that. Um, so yeah, I think you will love it. I will yeah. tell you when we go, I think it would be fun to have a group of people so we can go check it out. I would absolutely love that. And I, I was actually going to say, so when I started to get to know Stuart, I, I wanted to go there. And then um, I met Simon who was in the, in the um, 
the clubhouse group yeah. and he actually was on here too. And he spoke with me and he told me about where he grew up and I was like, Oh my God. So everyone I meet from Africa, I just want, I want to go and just like, oh. I want to go with Simon. I want to go with you. I want to just dig in and like see everything and just learn all I can. It's not far away from each other either. Africa is not too, you, you can go, but you want to give yourself like a chance, maybe like a, I would say maybe a, a week in each country. So you actually soak in the culture. Sounds like you love the, to connect with people. So it would be, give yourself maybe a week in each place. Um, yeah. Kenya, where Simon is from, is actually border, it's neighbors to Rwanda. Perfect. So it's, it's 45 minutes on a flight. Great. Uh, Don't take sounds, a bus. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that sounds fantastic. I actually... Um, one of one of my friends who I again met through like social media and stuff, she runs a um, a tea company out of Kenya called Ajiri Tea, where um, she went down there and she employs women to like make the tea and then they make artwork in the box that they sell. So every person that buys an Ajiri tea is actually helping put women to get get employment and helping the children go through school and then when you get a box of ajiri tea you actually get some of the artwork that they wow. made and a piece of jewelry that they have made and it all comes from kenya and it is stunningly beautiful i love tea i love to support them if you send me the, the I website will, yeah. I'll, and i'll spread the news this is something that you know um and you can cut off all of this too nick if you want to i think it's uh when you empower women i know you're a man and my husband is you know man when you empower women there's something beautiful of how they're going to treat the kids yes and to really give them you know by nature we just we nurture that right so when you empower women they go out there and be able to raise you know children even children who that who are not their own yeah. um I've worked with women a um, few times who have taken in, even in Rwanda after the genocide, who just literally said, I lost all my children by welcoming. And these are the women who just, with a little that they had, like a little bit of food, they were able to share with these children who are just not their own, these orphans. And those are the people that we'd actually empower as well when we do these, uh, support these orphanages. We, we have like orphanages where women from the villages came up and just any child who's not wanted, they take them in. And to know that those babies are being taken care of um, through either donation or somebody making a tea, that just warms my heart. Yeah. Yeah. I would love, love so to support beautiful. them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I think women are so I mean, absolutely vital, but so just incredible. And yeah, when you when you see the empowerment and when women come together, it's it's really really beautiful. And I yeah. I'm all for that. I think that's in, I think it's incredible. We need more of that. We need more men out there <laughs> acknowledging that yes. women are badass, and we got just <laughs> get get used to it, man. Far more than we, we are. We change the world. Yes. We, we really yeah, we we can change the world. Uh, Rwanda has. Um, 64% of women in their government. And I'm seeing yes. things happen because of women. And Absolutely. so when you empower women, they also we come in with that gentleness as well, right. but also you said it, badass as well, but also when it comes to loving and being peacemakers, 
women know how we don't have yeah. a you know might have a little bit of ego sometimes but not like men <laughs> right right i fully agree i think that's amazing so yeah. i can't wait to go to rwanda with you that's gonna Come be amazing yes we're fully vaccinated too nick so we'll go Good. anytime Fantastic. I cannot wait. And then I'll get Stuart to come up so you can meet Stuart. Stuart is one of the most beautiful humans I know. I love that oh man to death. Is he on social media? Maybe you connect me with him. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll connect you. He's yeah. uh, the, the reason I wanted to talk to him is I saw his smile and the joy coming from his smile. And I was like, I have to befriend that dude. And then we became friends. And it's so, just it's, like that. Just like that. He was he was working in the um, in the dining hall and he was just talking to people and laughing and smiling. And I was like, I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet Stuart. We're going to become friends. And we did. And I love it. It's so good. I I seriously connect with him every day. I check in on him just to make sure he's doing okay. That's your brother. That's my brother. Yeah. That's your brother right there. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. All right. I have one more question for you. Yes. And it is, if you had the ear of everybody in the world, what would you say to them? If you love God, love one another. It's important that, yeah. As you hear a lot of people go, I love God. I'm from this church or, you know, I'm a Christian or I, it doesn't even have to be Christian. Every religion has a God, right? Yep. This with quotation mark. If you love the creator, Love his creation. That's it. And make everybody be your brother, your sister, because in the end, if we are made by one creator, we are brothers and sisters. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that one. That's a really (laughs) incredible way to put it. I love love that because so many people say, to love love and kindness is a massive one that when I ask this question, but I think that one's really important especially in this country right now, because there's a lot of divisiveness with that. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people using Christianity in, in a hateful way. And mm-hmm. I saw, I've, I've seen that a lot and it really just, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, mm-hmm. if, if God created all of this and you know, like then you should be the hippie tree hugger, whatever you want. Like you should want to save this world, this planet because your God created it. And also, yes how can you hate people like basis of every religion is love and acceptance so i don't know where that i mean man took that and ran with it to where where it's gotten to but i think that's a really incredibly beautiful way to end this is what a what an incredible story so much power so much strength in it and i i truly appreciate you reliving that and sharing that with me and i'm so happy we connected you're such an amazing woman and such a beautiful human. So thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me. I hope you have a blessed day today, a peaceful day as well. Again, I I hope everybody gets to hear uh, your podcast. I'll be sharing just because I feel like it's uh, our society, our world needs much more of this. So thank you so much for being the voice out there. Thank you. I I appreciate you sharing your voice with my voice. it, It makes it beautiful. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Nick. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Beautifully Human podcast. To hear more beautiful stories from beautiful humans, follow us on Spotify and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at 
the Beautifully Human Podcast. Peace signs up.